Um, one of the challenges, as um, Margaret and Heather know only too well, of being a First World War historian in 2014 is that determination to do uh, 1914 parallels in terms of current international relations. Uh, and what struck me, uh, particularly this year, is that we had our scrap of paper moment, um, and it never became one. Uh, the uh, 1994, uh, Britain, the United Kingdom, uh, the United Kingdom, the United States, and and Russia had, of course, guaranteed uh, the borders of Ukraine. Um, a, a, a parallel with the guarantee to Belgium, which uh, nobody in the press picked up at the time. And I was amazed, and I thought, maybe there's a conspiracy here, precisely because we didn't want to go to our scrap of paper moment uh, about Belgium. And I think that um, what that really highlights for me is the extraordinary break that 1914 represents, uh, because for many, the outbreak of the war did seem to be about issues which could be encapsulated as a, as a scrap of paper, uh, and which did come, as, as Margaret's explained both today and in her book, in terms of um, a world that saw itself, or at least a Europe that saw itself, as uh, remarkably homogenous, uh, with many shared values and shared ideals and shared ideologies. Um, what's striking, therefore, about the outbreak of the war is a sense of shock um, and uh, the sense that everybody had that it really was changing the world around them, that their lives would never be the same again. Uh, and for me, the radicalization that, that Heather talked about in terms of war aims is even more a radicalization of ideologies, um, that uh, very quickly ideas which had been held in common became appropriated by one side or the other. Um, that for France it was a war for civilization, and that Germany understood culture uh, in other terms, and that Britain was fighting for the rule of law, and so on. Uh, and one of the things that made this war assume its scale was precisely the importance and also the capacity for expansion of those big ideas, um, because clearly in the hands of, of propaganda used most more broadly, I don't mean deliberate government propaganda, but indeed in things like the Oxford the pamphlets produced here by the modern history faculty, um, they had the capacity to become uh, values which were uh, irreconcilable um, and therefore had the capacity to expand the war. Now the point of beginning there is that we therefore see the war as escalating um, and indeed anyone who is a Klaus Witzin would say, well that's going to happen, isn't it, Gov? Um, and uh, there is a lot of truth in that. The point I want to make is most relevant to this conference is that peace is always there, precisely because this is a Europe which has a degree of shared values, precisely because there are enough people saying every now and then, what the hell are we doing? You know, what is happening to Europe? Uh, there is always the possibility of peace in the middle of war, and indeed you can only understand one in relationship to the other, particularly in this context. I know that, that there will be plenty of those who say that is not universally true, uh, but I think in the context of 1914-18 it is true. So the first point I want to make is that even during the course of the war, peace is never completely off the agenda. And indeed the first peace negotiations begin that very first winter. Not much comes out of them. Um, and of course, as there are sunk costs, not least in terms of casualty levels, it becomes very hard for either side to compromise. So when Woodrow Wilson uh, launches his peace initiative in December 1916, it becomes very clear when he gathers in the war aims of the respective powers that there is no basis for negotiation. The two are, are, are simply too far apart. France won't negotiate over Alsace-Lorraine, 
Germany won't negotiate over Alsace-Lorraine. Britain won't negotiate over Belgium. Germany won't negotiate over Belgium. But the fact that peace can be put on the agenda, and indeed peace had been put on the agenda only weeks previously by Germany itself, in what some would see as a cynical ploy. Uh, 1917, um, the Pope, uh, not for the first time, anxious to act as, if you like, the preeminent neutral in all this, with Catholics on both sides, uh, trying to get people to the peace table. Um, and the, the Bourbon Sixth uh, peace uh, negotiations, which perhaps had more hope underpinned them, simply because they might have brought Austria-Hungary out of the war on the grounds that Austria-Hungary had nothing more to gain from this war. Um, and then when the war ends, of course, war does, doesn't end on the 11th of November 1918. Uh, war ends for some countries right at the beginning of 1918, and for other countries not till 1923. Um, there is no clear way out of this war, because there is, war has become an aggregation of a whole series of lesser wars, or of regional struggles, or of independent struggles, or of revolutions uh, leading to civil war. Um, so, uh, as has become sort of standard in the literature now, there's a messy end. So, my first point would simply be that, that um, peace is never off the agenda, in a way it always has to be on the agenda, because, and people forget this too rarely, because Klaus has said so many other things, as he himself said, uh, there comes a point uh, where you fight war precisely in order to achieve a more lasting peace. So, <clears throat> what um, I think that reflects too is the aspiration of the left, and indeed one of the justifications for entering this war in the first place, that this would be the war to end all wars. This is not a phrase that appears first in 1917, 18, or 19. This is there from the very beginning in 1914, uh, particularly on the French left. How do you justify, uh, given the solidarity of the international working class, uh, before 1914, and the failure of the International Socialist Bureau in 1914 to stop war, how do you uh, justify and explain this war? And if you can say this is the war to end all wars, because it truly will be awful, and we really will conclude that we don't want to do this again, then war will have served a purpose. It will remain utilitarian. Um, and that, um, therefore, is a continuous thread, uh, and it leads to many different offshoots, including Russia's ambition after the revolution to have a peace without annexations and without indemnities, and um, uh, the, the, the 14 points from Woodrow Wilson and Lloyd George's TUC speech making many of the same points uh, that Wilson uh, was about to make <coughs> later. Um, what the war did, however, precisely because it was about something that did seem and was epoch-making, uh, was change how war was studied. Um, when Margaret was talking just now about 19th century thinking about war, what um, I think a lot of it reflects is a tension between innovation, which was self-evident in an industrialising <coughs> Europe, and the belief that war itself had certain continuities, um, that it was essentially unchanging. Um, the arguments uh, of Germany and Clausewitz when they had reflected on the last great war, that was to say the Napoleonic Wars, uh, and indeed the arguments of Mahan and Corbett when they looked at maritime strategy <coughs> at the end of the 19th century, were couched in historical terms. They used previous wars in order to explain current problems. Uh, and that trend did not end until 1914. 
staff colleges used military history as their principal teaching tool. Indeed, the reason I'm sitting here today is Oxford did that too. Uh, the Oxford history of chair of the history of war was established in 1909 because the history of war and the study of current strategy was seen to be one and the same thing. After 1918, that had changed. Thinking about war was much more future-orientated, much more technologically driven. Douay, when he wrote uh, his uh, work on the command of the, uh, of the air in 1921, in its first edition, said, you know, throw history out. Um, <laughs> he then, of course, used lots of examples from the First World War as to why you should throw history out. So, uh, like uh, uh, many of the best arguers, um, you don't actually obey what you say you're going to do. Uh, but he essentially wanted to take some point in the future and reverse engineer back to the present in terms of how we would shape thinking. And the point of mentioning Douay is uh, self-evident, that is to say, for most of this sort of thinking in the 1920s and 30s, the apocalyptic vision of war was built around the bomber and gas, and ideally those two things in combination. Uh, bombers that dra drop gas on urban centres would achieve maximum effect. And of course, at one level, this was an argument for having a short war, because um, as Douay argued, and as Little Hart argued in a book called Paris, uh, or The Future of War, published in 1925, uh, the shock on the population of such an attack, totally un untested, of course, in practice in the First World War, I mean, not totally untested, because, of course, there were attacks from the air on civil civilian populations, but untested in terms of actually uh, being able to produce results, uh, uh, the shock on the population would produce revolution disorder and a quick end to war. Um, so what you're doing is letting theory run ahead of practice, uh, letting theory run ahead of actually what the technology can deliver, because the capacity to do that, even in the context of the Second World War, isn't really there until 1944-45. Uh, you haven't got an aircraft uh, heavy enough uh, uh, to carry a significant bomb load in order to achieve that. The other big change um, which seems to me in how, we, how, the, how war is thought about is that it shifts its understanding of strategy because that understanding that went around staff colleges before 1940 was staff college business. Strategy was a business for generals. When Clemenceau said war is too important to be led to generals or when General Van Ripper or whatever he's called in Dr. Strangelove says war is too important to be left to politicians, both of them of course were right, um, when, when uh, Clemenceau said that, he said that reflecting a fundamental truth that had been learnt um, during the course of the First World War but not fully articulated until afterwards, which was to say that whereas Clausewitz and all his successors had seen war as the use of the battle, sorry, war strategy as the use of the battle for the purposes of war, in other words, something that was internal to war. Um, after the war, uh, strategic thinkers were wont to say uh, that war strategy was the use of war for the purposes of policy. Um, that, uh, that, although Clausewitzian uh, phrase, was actually not how Clausewitz had defined strategy, it was how uh, he had talked about the utility of war. And that is really the point that I want to wrap up on. How long have I got? About three minutes. Um, which is that the challenge in 1919 is how do you make this experience useful? How do you give it utility? Uh, and one solution comes out of a phrase that, that Heather used just now, uh, that of total war. 
If um, um, guerre totale is a phrase that you find in France, uh, Dodé uses it in 1918, uh, but you know, doesn't have currency until the interwar period itself. And very often when it is used, it is used uh, in terms, by like Ludendorff, for example, where he actually talks about totalitarian war in 1935, in terms of the level of national mobilization required to fight the next war. But it's also used as a form of deterrence and as a form of self-deterrence by saying what we're looking at now is something so truly awful that of course we've got to avoid it. It is deterrent in its purpose, it prefigures the Cold War, and to achieve that effect, it has casualty figures for the First World War which aggregate everything possible. I mean, Heather and I, I think have talked about this before, but we have no idea uh, of what the true scale of loss of life in the First World War is, with the result that it's free, free, free terrain for anybody to say how many people were killed in this, this war. We have a rough idea to the nearest million of how many military dead there were, but even that is up for negotiation. But for civilian dead, we have no idea at all. And you will find figures up to 60 million, as opposed to 9, 10 million military dead, being quoted in, in the interwar period. Um, and there is no scientific basis for that figure, any more than the figure uh, which the Prime Minister used the other day uh, and the government in this country uses regularly, which is 16 million, which is, as far as I can see, also conjured out of thin air. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, but the point, any of these big figures, is they say we shouldn't do this. The alternative argument is can we use war in a more limited way? Can we use war in a way uh, which, is which makes war serviceable because there are moments and humanitarianism can be one of the drivers where we feel we need to act. Or in the context of the League of Nations and one of the reasons arguably why the League of Nations failed uh, in the way that the United Nations we hope will not uh, is there can be a necessity to use war to enforce peace in other words, there needs to be some mechanism by which we still retain the right to use military force rather than put it into a, pole, uh, 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 into a position where it is unusable. And here, it seems to me there are two or three quick tricks or points to make. One is, after the war, many military thinkers said the reason the war had become so awful was precisely the product of the creation of mass armies and conscription. Everyone, everyone, Hans von Sachs in Germany, uh, Charles de Gaulle in France, uh, Basel Little House in this country, uh, play with this idea. If we had smaller armies that were professional and elite forces, then they would be more maneuverable and we'd be able to achieve success quicker, particularly if we use mechanization to achieve that. Uh, new weapon system will, systems will enable us to do a greater firepower with fewer people, which is exactly the argument that's used to justify troop reductions in the early 21st century too. Uh, so that has its day. Uh, and accompanied to that is you know, one of the arguments that are running, running through international law, which is that when Heather said there was a failure really to address the use ad bellum problem uh, that Kellogg-Briand does not deliver in the interwar period, self-evidently, there is at the same time a great attention to use in bellow issues, even if that doesn't deliver very much either, which includes how you treat prisoners of war, but also tries to address rules for air warfare, tries to bring uh, war into some sort of element of containment. Um, next time you read A.G. MacDonald's England, There, England, and I was appalled speaking to a fellow of all cells the other day he'd never heard of it. Um, it. Next time you read, don't just read it for the chapter about the cricket match. Read it <laughs> for the chapter about the Geneva disarmament negotiations, where uh, the hero gets caught up in an extraordinarily protracted discussion about horse nails for shoes um, which could possibly be weapons of war, 
because, of course, they will be used for cavalry horses. Uh, and the French and the Germans can't agree on this. Um, and this, should it be contraband in the next war or should it not? Um, and that, um, although obviously mocking this whole trend, does reflect one trend. Um, and finally, of course, um, this fails our expectation out of all the expectation out of the interwar period is that if there will be another war in Europe, it won't be a limited war, it will be a total war. What strikes me in 1945 is that in some ways the limited war advocates, including Little Hart, whose most interesting book in many ways is the book he writes, he began to write before the dropping of the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but he finished afterwards, is an argument for saying we won't get rid of war, so how can we make it more manageable, more utilitarian, um, and ideally more humane if that isn't a contradiction in its conduct.